Welcome to the Northeast Audio Guided Walking Tour. These tours were created by a team of Northeast collaborators in cooperation with neighbors to bring you this snapshot of Northeast 2011 in reflection and consideration of the past, present, and the future. You are listening to the Noon Whistle Tour, designed by Macy Ashby, Jonathan Hamilton, Abby Fields, Monica Hansen, Mary Larson, Peter Schroeder, and Sienna Schuth. Thanks for meeting me by the front entrance of 1618 Central. I'm Abby. I moved to Northeast in 2003 when I was 8 years old. I'm taking a walk today to explore my neighborhood of Northeast, and it looks like you're joining me. I have some questions about Northeast. Remember to look at your map along with following my voice. Things can change quickly in Northeast. It's always good to cross-reference directions. If you fall behind, pause the walk until you catch up. And if you're ahead of me, wait until I catch up to you. Before we get started, I'm going into Diamonds, my favorite coffee shop, to grab a coffee. You should get something for the walk, too. We'll be gone for about an hour, so you might get thirsty. If you want to get something, pause the player and restart it when you're ready to go. The white building in front of you, the building next door at 1620 Central, and the connecting structure between them make up the Thorpe Building. It's loaded with history. It was built in the early 1900s, and has been a door manufacturer, a pump company for fire trucks, and General Mills even owned it for a while. They manufactured equipment for the military here, and that's actually one of the most interesting things about the Thorpe. In the 1940s, General Mills was building a top-secret bomb site, a tool that allowed accurate aiming of bombs onto its target. It was the same type of bomb site that was used on the plane the Enola Gay when it dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. We learned about military manufacturing that happened all over this neighborhood during World War II at school. The accordion music you're listening to is being played by Dan Turpening. He plays, builds, and repairs accordions here in the Thorpe Building. My name is Dan Turpening, and I repair and play the accordion. I saw a film, that my parents took me to a film, rather, at the Art Institute when I was a kid. And there was an accordionist in the film. It was an old Italian film by Fellini called Amarcord. And there was an accordion player in the, in the film. And the music and the accordion, I just fell in love with the sound. My mother plays classical piano and organ, and my dad used to play piano also. And my brother... My brother's a drummer, my sister used to play music, so music's in the family. I grew up repairing cars, and uh, I lived in Duluth, and I was going to school for art at the college at UMD, and my accordion teacher lived up there, and she was a as a repairer person and she learned in Germany. She's from Germany. But she had her school in Duluth and I was living there and I decided to take the course. It just made sense. 
walk down the sidewalk towards the train bridge. The thought of all the people that have used this building over the years fascinates me. How many ways this building has been adapted for different uses? Now the building is used as studios for painters, musicians, artisans, jewelers, and anything else you can imagine. As you get closer to the bridge, you will pass a large, rounded, concrete base on your right. That was the foundation of one of four guard towers that surrounded the building when General Mills was here. It's weird to think about armed guards in towers here in my neighborhood. As soon as you pass under the train bridge, take an immediate right up the dirt path to the big parking lot. Stop when you reach the parking lot. There's a sound you hear a lot northeast. Trains have been a major component of this neighborhood for a long, long time. The track you're passing under is the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Rail Line. Are you at the big lot after the train bridge? Every year in June, the Northeast Parade comes to an end right here. My friend Pete is a dedicated fan of the parade. He has sat in the exact same spot every year since 1971. This year will be the 83rd year of the Northeast Parade. It's the oldest community parade in Minnesota. The big brick building with the little green awning directly across the parking lot is the Northrop King Building. This building is a big part of Arterworld. There are over 170 local businesses, nonprofits, and studios in there. Arterworld takes place every May. You can visit different artists all around Northeast in some of the old industrial buildings, galleries, and privately owned studios. It's really interesting to get to see the inside of the old warehouse building and of course to see all the awesome artwork. I like pattern a lot. Paintings on sheetrock. Color. Recycle materials. Designers, sculptors. Each generation leaves something behind, something beneficial. My name is Loretta, Loretta Bebo. I come from a very small town in North Dakota. I felt it was very important to help building the, build the community, you know, be active with the people. So I felt I should put my passion where I, where I would be most used. Building myself, building my attitude, that kind of positive thinking. Okay, this work is going to be dedicated to becoming stronger. No, the swing, um, actually a woman who is a couple of studios down originally had this studio and she put the swing in. And you'll notice that studio also has a swing. So... She's the one who originated it, but my studio, me, and I love it. It's great for 
thinking and just taking a break. Um, Northeast is kind of the neighborhood that I think has become a center of creative expression for Minneapolis. There's a really great artistic community here. It's just great to have people come in and give you their thoughts about your work. Um, it's just fun to meet new people. Let's head over toward that green street sign, Van Buren Street, and get a different perspective. When you get there, cross Van Buren, turn left, and walk down the right side of Van Buren Street. Look to the left of the Northrop King Building at that big lock sign on the little dark brick building. I wonder what that is. That's a perfect example of the kind of unique things you see in this neighborhood. Sometimes you come across things that are really neat and nobody can tell you the story behind it. It could be something that just showed up one day. Another cool thing about Artaworld is all the music. There are bands all around the neighborhood playing shows all weekend. I think it's a great way to showcase different kinds of art, stuff other than the standard paintings or photographs. Built in 1917, the Northrop King Building housed the Northrop King Seed Company, wholesaling company, processing seeds to send all around the country. It was here until the mid-1980s. Then it sat empty for 10 years before the artists moved in. So many buildings in Northeast started out housing industry, and now they house artist studios. Makes me wonder what will be here 75 years from now. get to the corner of Van Buren and 14th, carefully cross 14th, and then take a right, and continue to walk up 14th on the left side of the sidewalk. From there, we'll head up toward the railroad tracks. Be careful when approaching the tracks. They are active tracks. Ahead is a different set of train tracks than the ones we walked under before. These tracks belong to the Canadian Pacific Line. Up the tracks about 13 blocks away is an old rail yard called Shoreham Yards. Northeast neighbor and head of SAC Shoreham Yard Committee, Gail Bonneville, knows a lot about the rail system and some of the problems that arise when they are surrounded by a neighborhood.
Gail Bonneville. I'm a resident of uh, Northeast Minneapolis, and I'm also the chair of the uh, Shoreham Area Advisory Committee, which focuses on Shoreham Yards Rail Yard. In my dreams, with the clanging of the empty box cars on their way back side. Minneapolis was the mill city. Back in the late 1800s, that's what really put Minneapolis on the map. The um, Millers, who were very influential Minneapolis movers and shakers, really founded the town. Some of the most famous names in Minneapolis we still see on our parks and streets. Uh, the Pillsburys, the Washburns, the Lowrys. They were dealing with one railroad at that time. That was James J. Hill's Railroad. They felt he had kind of a monopoly and they didn't like his pricing and they were sort of stuck with him. So when you're a rich entrepreneur, what do you do? You form your own railroad. They decided that the hub of that was going to be right here in Northeast. That's what became Shoreham Yards. They had up to a thousand workers in its heyday. It, ha it was kind of a self-contained village. They had um, blacksmith shop. They made their own tools. They had a, a greenhouse where they could grow flowers for putting on the passenger trains. The passenger depot is still on site. Uh, they did all their own repair work, of course, there. There were boarding houses on Central Avenue for some of the workers. PAC was formed by a court order in the late 90s. The city of Minneapolis lost a lawsuit against the Sioux Line, now known as Canadian Pacific Railway. The lawsuit between the city and Sioux Line was about Sioux Line wanting to tear down many of the historic buildings on the Shoreham Yard property and the city wanting to preserve them. The judge said that in the course of this argument to be kind of a forum for the surrounding neighborhood uh, folks to talk about all issues related to Shoreham Yards. Railroads are governed by federal law which is a big issue for any community in this country. But at the same time, we do need to acknowledge they are providing a benefit for society. Railroading is still very um, efficient transportation and green transportation. If you look at how many trucks it would take to haul the same amount of commodity that comes in and out of Shoreham, it'd be a lot, a lot more traffic on our roads. A rail yard is not what you might think it is any longer. It's a distribution center. And a lot of people don't see that because there aren't that many of them around. You know, they're big, they take up a lot of land, so they're few and far between. But uh, it, it is a really, it's a real changed uh, operation. These tracks crisscross through the neighborhood, then span all over the country. But trains still carry people. Minneapolis just added a new commuter rail called the North Star. Stop at the corner of 14th and Quincy Street.
brick building across the street with the yellow loading dock is Architectural Antiques. They have everything in there. Old doorknobs, church pews and altars, headboards, sinks, ornate light fixtures, vintage tile. It's overflowing. You can see the stuff on the loading dock and in the side yard of the building. You can get a hint of what is inside looking through the windows. Maybe some of those things were owned by people who used to live and work in this area and in these buildings. I love to go into architectural antiques and watch them refurbish the old items. And imagine that each thing I touch was once brand new and owned and experienced by another individual living and breathing like me. You can see the old cobblestones showing through the asphalt. At one time, these streets were active with industry. Life was hard back then. We tend to romanticize the past and forget that there was a darker side. The men that worked in these factories worked long, hard days with only Sundays off, and working conditions were dangerous and toxic. I'm sure there was no such thing as overtime in the early 20th century. My life would have been very different too. I wouldn't have the opportunity to get a full education and my choices would be limited by traditional female role. And we wouldn't be on a walk right now. Turn left and continue walking down Quincy. There's no sidewalk, so stay on the left so you can watch for oncoming traffic. Traffic is usually slow, but does exist. Look on the ground to the right. Do you see the old train rails that go right up to the buildings? I've always wondered about these, and I finally asked the right person. Those are called rail sidings. They are low-speed sections of track used so that train cars could pull next to a building and be easily unloaded and loaded with goods. Eventually, wide use of rail sidings faded into a thing of the past as gas became cheaper and truck engines became stronger. Now, cargo bins carried by large trucks transport goods to shipping yards where they are loaded and unloaded onto trains and ships that transport goods all over the world. Stop. On your right, you can see Uppercut. It's a boxing gym, currently the only one in the U.S. owned solely by a woman. This building used to be a way station. The plates for the scale are still under the floor. Continue to walk as we listen to Lisa Bausch talk about establishing the uppercut. I saw a clip on the TV back in 92, 93, and it was on a small gym, and I wanted to just try it. Um, it was one of the few gyms that would let me in, because I went to three other gyms that wouldn't let me in, because I was a girl. The sport was seems to be this deep, dark secret that's only let out to certain people. It just thought that that was a little, didn't make a lot of sense to me because I knew the more you let people in on the secret, the more they're going to understand the sport and the less scary it is. We just tried to open it to mm -hmm. other people. I started the gym in 1996 off of Glendale and Lake Street. That was our first location. Then we moved here in 2003. Um, I didn't know a lot about Northeast. My sister was in commercial real estate and she kept saying, you have to see this warehouse, you have to see it. And I was fighting against it because I knew that if I liked it, I was really going to want it. And as soon as I walked in, I visualized 
actually how the gym is, is set up right now. The huge scale is in the storage in the back. I don't have any partners or anything, and it's just kind of my deal, and which makes it easy and hard in a way. We have our pro fighters. We've got about four of them in here right now. They're getting ready. They're training to fight uh, in a couple weeks, and then we have an amateur team. And then we have just a regular general membership for people that just want to learn the sport but don't necessarily want to fight. Gym kind of sells itself. You know, it's not for everybody. But I think the people that have tried the health clubs and tried other things and they're just totally and completely bored with it. When they walk in, it is a little different energy, um, just a different atmosphere. And it keeps, you know, it kind of keeps you going. It's amazing to think of how much social roles have changed. When this was still an industrial area, it would have been unheard of for a woman to own a boxing gym. People who are drawn to these non-traditional spaces are creative individuals, and they aspire to do something innovative with their businesses. That tall, white and blue building to your far left is one of General Mills' plants. Some days, you can smell the cereal cooking. It's weird, though. I tried to get some information about this particular building, but nobody seemed to know anything about it. Not even the people at General Mills headquarters. Maybe they are still making top-secret military instruments. Hmm. This parking lot on the right used to be a victory garden during World War II. My friend Mike Fahey was telling me about it. He's lived in the neighborhood for a long time. He calls himself a Northeast dinosaur. During World War I and II, people were encouraged to grow their own food to help with the war effort by minimizing the stress on the public food supply. They were called victory gardens. I'm impressed that the general public would step up like that. Seems to me that we could do that again, start growing more of our own food. We could feed more people and eat fresher food and use less gasoline for shipping. Community gardens are certainly gaining popularity. There are a few here in Northeast and one at the end of the street across Broadway. So I guess people are doing just that, growing their own food. I'm Robert Perry. I live in South Minneapolis and I garden in Northeast. Just try and get it as close to the root as you can. And pull. And just be at peace with pulling up a lot of the dirt. Because it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of satisfaction. I like this loose lettuce. The first mistake I made the first uh, season was that I planted everything at once and then all of a sudden it all bloomed at once and you had salad for everyone for mm -hmm. a week. A lot of it's uh, trial and error. A lot of it's um, ask someone smarter than you. Hey, it's funny. We used to have a seed company here, right around the corner at the Northrop King building. I've been to the last building on the left on this block with my mom. This is the administration building for Minneapolis Public Schools. It used to be a light bulb factory. Now, Minneapolis Public Schools is planning to move to a new location across the river. So who knows what new use this building will be put to. I'm sure it will have an effect on the neighborhood, no matter what moves into this building. Let's turn left here at the end of Quincy Street onto Broadway Avenue. Or we could stop into Uncle Frankie's across the street. They've got great malts. Mmm. Apparently, they make really good hot dogs, but I'm vegetarian. So I stick to the fries and the malts. You ever stick your french fries in your malts? That's really good. Anyway, the entire inside is decorated with Scooby-Doo paraphernalia. Worth a stop if you're hungry. The owner, Jay, is a nice guy. Last time I was in, we chatted for a while. 
Oh, by the way, take a look at Uncle Frankie's sign and store that image in your memory. We will talk about it later on in this walk. Pause the walk if you want to go to Uncle Frankie's. And please be careful crossing Broadway. It is a very busy street. If you want to keep walking without going to Uncle Frankie's, do not cross the street. Instead, turn left in front of the Minneapolis Public Schools building and walk up Broadway towards Central Avenue. You will cross Jackson Street. Stay on Broadway. My name is Jay Grobstein. We're at Uncle Frankie's. My wife and I built Airte on 13th and University. Uncle Frankie started off as my place bar. It was my place bar for years and years, probably 30 years. And they used to serve great hamburgers. In the early 90s, it burned down. Michael Abramovitz bought the store probably in the middle 90s and they redid it. And the guy passed away after being my customer and his son asked us if we were interested. And my wife and I, being from Chicago, we're like, God, we, it's right down the street from our house now. So we'll put in some Chicago food. And that was in 2000 and I think two, we opened up Uncle Frankie's. One of my customers from Airtake came in the day we opened because we we're going from a steakhouse to a hot dog joint. He brought me a Scooby-Doo with a little hot dog on top. And somebody else came in, I was like, oh, you like Scooby-Doo? I was like, well, how can I not like, of course I like Scooby-Doo. Then they brought me a clock. And then I started giving people hot dogs for every time they brought in a Scooby-Doo thing. So eventually I had a thousand Scooby-Doo things. You know, you order and you pretty much watch the show. Is it or candy? Overwhelming. Candy dog or water dog? You wait for the Giovanni to yell it out to you and you'll know when it's yours because he'll be looking right at you screaming. So Chicago dogs, no onions. But here it's go. He uh, is pretty much a staple because Giovanni is part of the uh, is part of the ambiance here. Condi dog or Washington dog? You're in the middle of, you know, blue collar northeast, it's great. Last year somebody came right through with his car, through this metal table, through the fence. Okay. We said, hey, we're gonna call the cops. The guy walked inside, he goes, can I at least have a hot dog? <laughs> I got the guy a hot dog. We sat out here and waited for the cops. The cops arrested the guy, he was in big trouble, something, but at least he got his hot dog. So we was here for three years before anybody from Northeast came in, you know? So, and now it's a local, it's, it's, it's standard. You know, everybody knows where it's at. You know, some people hate us, most people love us. I was wondering if it ever become old, and now it is old. You know, I look at it, it's like, oh, that's an old, like, dive. You know, I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> okay, no problem. Thank you. Remember the sign for Uncle Frankie's? My friend Chank Diesel designed the logo for Uncle Frankie's. He is an artist from Northeast that knows a lot about being an artist in Northeast. My name's Chank uh, Diesel. That's my artist name. And I've been an artist living and working in Northeast for about 15 years now. My main business is making fonts for computers. I do lots of alphabet drawing. I had this character I've been drawing for years, and they told me they were um, naming their restaurant after the owner's Uncle Frankie, who's a real person down in Chicago. I did my interpretation of my round-eyed, round-headed guy as Uncle Frankie. He's got a mustache and big ears. <laughs> uh, I do corporate fonts too, so I mean, you find my fonts on Huggies boxes, you find a lot of them at Target. Everywhere you go, you see typefaces, and you don't think about who made them, but um, Somebody made them. With public art, 
Uh, it's a chance for you to create a bigger piece, but it also goes out to more people. When you sell one piece to one family in a gallery, it hangs in their house and they show it to themselves and 10 or 12 friends. And if you have a piece in the public arena, thousands of people see it every day. The artists move into a dilapidated old neighborhood because that's all they can afford. The professionals move in and they drive up the property values and the artists have to go somewhere else. I did a mural that was at 19th and Central and um, it was on a, a dilapidated old building that had environmental pollution inside it. And, and, and it hung for two or three years and then they did the environmental cleanup on the site. And now there's a new building there and it's great. It's, from the viewer's perspective is important because it gives them a chance to interact with art. When you go to galleries and museums to see art, it always says do not touch the art. It's intimidating and daunting. You're afraid of art because you know you're not supposed to touch it. And public art, is in the public arena, so it has to be durable and approachable. Kids, in particular, they come up and they start kicking it, you know, that, that it's an interesting way for them to interact with art, to not be afraid of it. Good artwork is meant to last hundreds of years, no matter how many kids come up and start kicking it. Stop at the corner. This intersection is referred to as the gateway. Take a look at the symbols along the fencing representing the different nationalities that have lived in Northeast. Susan Fine, an artist who makes public art, conceptualized and created these. There's also a view of downtown Minneapolis's skyline, the industrial area of Northeast, and the train tracks that just go on forever. Okay, let's head over to Beltrami. We are on the left side of Broadway. We'll need to cross both Central and Broadway so we end up kitty corner from where we are now. Just be careful crossing the street. It's a busy intersection. Pause the walk and cross with the light. Play the walk once you reach the other corner. Are you on the right side of Broadway, facing down towards the park? Refer to your map. Walk down the hill towards the park. This side of Central is the Beltrami neighborhood. The park is on the right. It's the heart of the neighborhood. Originally, this was a Swedish neighborhood called Maple Hill. I mean, originally, this area was occupied by Native Americans. There were large populations of Dakota and Ojibwe here long before the Europeans arrived. And there were other woodland tribes that lived here before the Dakota and Ojibwe moved in. There are several motifs included on the gateway to Northeast representing the local tribes. Around the turn of the century, Italians started moving into this area as well. Immigrants brought with them to this new land their old prejudices and developed a few more when they got here. After the Italians started to settle in this neighborhood, the Swedes, who were not fond of the Italians, began to leave. Over a 15-year period, this neighborhood became primarily Italian. By 1948, this neighborhood was officially called Beltrami. The new immigrants worked for the Sioux Line Railroad and the flour mills on the other side of the river. As with all the neighborhoods around here, people worked close to where they lived. 
As we cross Polk Street, we'll follow the path through Beltrami Park. Oh, there's my friend Mary. Hey, Mary, what are you doing here? I'm just going on a walk. What are you doing? I just came from Delmonico's. They've got great Italian food. Oh, well, I was just on a walk trying to learn more about the neighborhood. I know a ton about it. Can I join you? Oh, I'd love that. Let's walk up this path into the park. So what's happened to this park? I don't really know much. Well, it's Beltrami now, but it used to be called Maple Hill. And this whole area was a cemetery. A cemetery? What happened to it? Well, it's a pretty old one. The first recorded burial was about 1857. and there was Wait, so what do you mean by first recorded burial? Well, rumor is that some of the families northeast who didn't have much money, and most families didn't have much money, kind of did their own little burials in the middle of the night with all the added expense of a middleman, like an undertaker. And then about 1890, the whole place was filled up and the city decided that it just wasn't going to have any more burials here. So they cleared a little bit out, especially when they started expanding Fillmore Street and some of the others. But the neighbors decided that it wasn't going fast enough. So in the middle of the night, oh, somewhere I think about 1901, something like that, they just came and cleared everything out themselves, dumped headstones in the ditches, and some of them unburied the relatives they had buried before. All in all, probably estimated maybe another 3,000 bodies still here, though. Wow, still under the ground right now? In fact, when they dug this up to make the park, they were finding casket parts, handles, kids would come here and find all kinds of interesting souvenirs. Yeah, that would be kind of scary to be a kid and then pull up a body. <laughs> I don't know if they ever found bodies, but it was interesting. And if you look around real close, you'll be able to find some of the headstones. So it was Maple Hill for a long time. They finally did turn it into a park. But then as the Italians started moving in, it became more Italian. It became Beltrami. This park has been pretty active. A lot of different things went on here. See that building with the green awning over there to your right? That's Delmonico's. That's been a store, oh, since the 1929 or so, and the same family has owned it all these years. There's still a couple cousins there, uh, Bob and Terry. They still run it. They make their own sausage, their own sauce, and they're just a couple of characters. Stop right here, and if we listen really closely, we might be able to hear Bob and Terry talking. Uh, I'm Bob Delmonico, and you're at Delmonico's at 1112 Northeast Summer Street in Northeast Minneapolis. And I'm Terry Delmonico's cousin. The store was started by our grandfather and uncle 80 years ago in 1929. And then my uncle Don worked here for a while, my aunt Minnie, my father Louie, and then his dad George, and Louie and George eventually took it over. I've been coming down here since I was a kid. I used to help my grandpa make spaghetti sauce. It was something I had to do after school and on the weekends. This neighborhood around here at one time used to be all Italian, all the way from Johnson Street over to Central. My name is Barbara DeRue. My dad used to come here all the time. We're Norwegian, and this is obviously an Italian, but he, he likes spaghetti. 1895, please. I grew up and brought him and my husband, and he loves to come here, so we've been coming, we've been back here since what, 30 years? Ramona, how many bananas? And we used to come here when the only the only place you could get fresh grated Parmesan was here. That's right. Not, now you can get it in Rainbow and every place, but you could only get it here. Nope, that's right. You like pasta? No, we got pasta. I grew up in a small grocery store like this. My folks were owner-operators, and uh, 
we had toilet paper stacked to the ceiling and that that's one of the other reasons I like it to come here. Well, there used to be probably five, six, seven stores around here. So they just found their niche with adding a, t- a few Italian food items and expanded from there. We got a lot of bread up front if you want bread. Uh, pretty much the store hasn't changed much in looks. Yep. <laughs> Apparently we're the last one that's even left now that Shula's is closed. Sure, if they come in, they can see the old-fashioned scales. We've got the string dispensers hanging from the ceiling. Sean and the big old banana hooks. Got the returnable pop bottle carriers from way back before they had cardboard cartons. Well, it probably was more groceries and a little bit of Italian instead of a lot of Italian with a little bit of groceries. Well, we make a lot of things here. Spaghetti sauce, Italian sausage. We do raviolis, tortellinis, meatballs. Hi, Ramona. Hi. And it's just the two of us, so we just spend our time in here, bantering with the customers. How many years have you been here? I'm getting nuts. Would you say you're nuts? Yeah. Oh, I come here very often for the charisma. If I'm feeling sad or down, these boys will lift you up immediately. <laughs> they are Northeast boys. And that's their whole purpose in life, is keep people happy. I've probably been coming here for... Um, 25 years or longer. Isn't this the best store you ever came to? They have a little bit of everything. Ramona, you don't get out very often. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You got lost one day and ended up here. Probably I got lost one day and ended up here and kept coming because it was so good. Let's keep walking. Um, what is that church on the corner over there, the brown one? That's Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Uh, it used to be a Swedish Methodist church, and then in the 30s, the congregation moved up to a church up on Laurie in Cleveland and sold this to an Italian neighborhood. The ladies of the church helped pay off the mortgage by holding, I think, either weekly or monthly Italian dinners and some great cooks came out of that church, ones that you've heard of. Rose Titino, Mama D's in Dinky Town, and of course, Marino's, who own a couple delis northeast. Nice, so we have some fame coming from the church. Oh, we do indeed, and some good food too. Look over here on the left, what are these? Those are bocce courts. Wait, what is bocce? Well, it's an Italian game that you play with uh, wooden balls, called like croquet balls, called Italian shuffleboard. You throw the ball at your opponent's ball, you try to knock them out of the ring, you try to get your ball closer to the ring. The closer you are, the more points you get. A little bit like horseshoes as well. It's terrific fun. So did only men play it? I guess I only saw the men out here in the evening, but I know now it's played by everybody and there's leagues all over the city. We're at the end of the park walk. Stop at the corner, carefully cross Broadway, do not cross Fillmore. Walk with the light, the traffic can be heavy here. Now that we've crossed Broadway, turn around and look towards the park. Look across the street, to the left, and down one block. 
See that stucco two-story building with the vines? That's the Margaret Berry Settlement House. In the settlement houses, they were taught English, they were taught hygiene, they were taught sewing, cooking. Uh, it was a place for recreation. The kids put on plays. And it was a way to bring them into the American way of life. Some of the settlement houses even had things like baths because maybe the house didn't have a bathroom. So they would come here once a week and get clean. And then, of course, as the generations were here, they weren't needed as much. So the Margaret Berry House closed in about 1973. It merged with the Northeast Neighborhood House, and that became the East Side Neighborhood Services. Turn to walk back up Broadway towards Central. We will take a right onto Tyler Street before we reach Central. Take a look to your left. You see those two stones up there? Now one of them, the taller one, tells you a little bit about the man Beltrami. The lower one is a monument to the Civil War dead that were buried here and eventually moved. There's a little poem at the bottom of the plaque. Within the boundaries of this park, which in past days was Maple Hill Cemetery, there rest in the sleep of the ages 46 soldiers of the Grand Army of the Republic. Courageously they responded to our country's call in the War of the Rebellion. Gallantly they fought to achieve the victory. Although men's thoughtless actions have deprived them of their right to individually marked and cherished graves, the children of future ages will gather here to honor them. Ooh, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> oh, look at the time. I gotta go. All right, well, thank you for taking this walk with me, Mary. I really learned a lot. You enjoy the rest of your walk. See you around. It was great to run into Mary. She grew up in Northeast and knows so much about the neighborhood. Some time ago, I talked with another woman named Mary, who knows a lot about Northeast. Her name is Mary Marino. She has been here a really long time. Mary is 104 years old and has lived in this neighborhood since the 1930s when she and her husband moved here. On Memorial Day, they used to come and have services here. All the other streets here, Pierce, Buchanan, especially, a lot of Italian, <laughs> mostly all older Italian people. And uh, so they had to have an Italian priest, but the priest was Irish. But he spent four years in Italy studying, so he knew the Italian language better than me. In the empty field to your right, there used to be a huge gas storage tank until about 1960, about one and a half stories high, and it took up almost the whole field. I saw a picture of it. If I had lived near it, I would have been afraid it would explode one day. The old times seemed so dangerous. I'm sure someone, someday, will think we were crazy to live by cellular towers. See that cannon on the right? It's a 25-pound howitzer. It was dedicated to the 34th Infantry Division by the British Army in recognition of being the first American division to engage the German Army in World War II. That battle was in Africa in November 1942. Here's the armory ahead to the right. This building has been here since before I was born, but it is nowhere near as old as the other buildings we've been seeing. I think it was built in 1993. The original armory is in downtown Minneapolis. When this new one was built, it was called a Training and Community Event Center. 
It's a National Guard training facility, although not much training goes on there anymore, mostly just community events. They do have a great public collection of military art and memorabilia of past wars. Turn right onto Tyler Street just past the armory. Walk on the armory grass until you reach the pavement. The building on the corner to your left, as you turn at Broadway and Tyler, was the old land of Nod. It was a mattress factory. My friend Pete told me that when he was a kid, he broke into the back of the building and was going through the boxes of cotton bales and found spiders the size of his thumb. Ah! Of course, he denied it all when I asked him about it again. So... Sometimes there are some dangers for artists forging their way into these old industrial spaces. They are often toxic and unsound structurally. An old seed building like the Northrop King seems a lot less toxic than some of the more heavy industrial buildings here on this side of Central. Developer Scott Tankenoff of Hillcrest Development tells us about the amazing transformation the buildings from here all the way down to the end of Tyler on the right side of the street went through in order to make them safely habitable. So we like to take old buildings that look like a bomb hit them and figure out something different. So the former owner of the property, Frost, Davis Frost Paint, had a approved work plan with the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency that unfortunately was flawed. There's a lot of pollution that had gone through fissures in the limestone down to 12 to 14 feet, and there was a lot of product and byproduct of linseed oil, raw material of linseed oil that was moving up and down through that uh, interface through the water table. Cleanup effort that they would have put together would not have been successful. We're the ones that are trying to not just fit in well with the neighborhood, but try to help that neighborhood move into a more positive direction in some cases. Part of this also is about advocating for your neighborhood and there's nobody in this neighborhood that was advocating. Time forgot. It's about having a good pulse and the, the clients that are in here, the people, the employees that are here are the ones that are making this area happen now. Patrick Riley of Modern Survey, a new resident of the Davis Frost Building, talks about his process of moving his business into the old Davis Frost space. I started this business modern survey in the North Loop neighborhood of Minneapolis in 1999. It was kind of an up-and-coming neighborhood. Rent was fairly inexpensive. It was a good place for a startup. A couple of years ago, we were starting to contemplate the idea of moving the business. What was a good thing 10 years ago was becoming a, an expensive thing. As soon as we walked into the Frost building here, um, immediately, it just seemed like the place to be. It just had all the right things going going for it. It just had the location, it had a special feel, and just the architecture itself was just so interesting and compelling. And that was this kind of industrial space with all the, the right things in terms of light and high ceilings and flow. Um, and it just and it just seemed like wow, this we could really make something special here. On your left is Ivy Saw. You can see from the sign it has been around for a long time. It has always been on Tyler Street, but it moved from the other side of Tyler to its present location when the renovation of Crown Iron Works began. Before we bought the uh, Crown Iron and Electric Machinery, which is now all Crown Center, there were people that were living on the north and the south ends of those buildings in different areas, and some of the areas actually were quite unique spaces. Um, that resembled a New York-style type loft living. The inside of the building was filled with all kinds of hazardous material, and it looked like something out of Nightmare on Elm Street. From a zoning standpoint, there's no living that was allowed at, in any of these buildings. My friend Sarah was one of those artists inspired by the industrial space of Crown Ironworks. 
She lived in this building before anyone had ever considered inspecting for toxins and livability. When I walk down this street, I think about how for seven years, when I turned the corner off of Broadway onto Tyler Street Northeast, I was hit with the brain-buzzing smell of linseed oil coming out of Davis Frost. It really smelled. Um, it looked horrible, but the first thing that hit everybody was the smell. Primarily a paint factory toward the uh, late 70s and 80s and 90s all the way up to the end. This was a uh, linseed oil factory. My name is Sarah Hansen. I worked and lived in the Tyler Street Studios in the old Crown Iron Works building from 1997 to 2003. I wanted a raw, affordable warehouse space where I could construct and deconstruct my environment. I could be as messy with my artwork as I wanted to be. Crown Iron Works was one of the many foundries that serviced the milling operations at St. Anthony Falls in the late 19th century. I would tell myself that the sounds of the blade-sharpening machines was the reason that I did not ever see any rodents, mice, or bugs inside of that warehouse space. I think that the high-pitched sound of the machines was the deterrent, not the toxicity. I worried about the toxicity of the place, old and new. The space where I lived was zoned light industrial and not residential and so I was living there illegally. Being aware of when the housing inspector was coming so I could hide my mattress and shoes was a big part of living there. Other types of conditions where there were a lot of people that candidly just for cost reasons were trying to live wherever they could and uh, both situations were candidly quite unsafe. If there had been an event, if there had been, whether it had been a fire or something else, um, it would have been a very bad scenario given how the building was being maintained at that time. I drove by and saw people in hazmat safety suits digging into the ground. I was even more concerned about my living in that space and walking my dog in that area. In 2003, I moved out of the studio and bought a house seven blocks away and turned my two-car garage into my studio and foundry. And now I'm a cast metal sculptor. Here at the end of Tyler, you can see two industries that have been here for over 100 years. On your left is Youngblood Lumber and is employee owned and operated. On your right, across the tracks, is Aaron Carlson, a fine custom architectural millwork, furniture fixtures and cabinetry corporation. At least, that's what their website says. Take a left at 14th. Stay on the right side of 14th on the sidewalk. Sometimes inspired ideas don't make it to full realization. On your right is an empty field. I love an empty field because in a city, there's always a story about why it's empty and what its future might be. Locust Architecture tells us about their journey with this field. I don't remember the year. It was probably 2004, 2005. We acquired that property from the city of Minneapolis. It was in tax forfeiture. We agreed to develop a building on it. And that's about as far as we got before the closing of the land happened. Our intention uh, at Locust was to build a 5,000 square foot building for ourselves and then develop the parcel more intensively once we built our building and we were officing out of that location. The city really wanted a bigger building in the beginning and that prevented us from doing it. And then the, when the credit markets completely imploded, we just we couldn't borrow the money in order to build it. And Mike Christensen, the head of CPED, through somebody that works for him, I don't remember who the first person was that contacted us, said, uh, you know, they set up a meeting and Mike actually himself said, we want the land back. And I think he made it very clear to us that 
they wanted it back, they were going to get it back and we could either um, play nice or um, the city seemed like they were ready to play hardball with us and taking it back. And so we negotiated the terms of the sale and that was, that was pretty much the end of Red Square. <laughs> Stop at the light at Central Avenue. We will be crossing the street and taking a right up Central. But before we do that, look to your left at the little yellow building across Central, the Ideal Diner. I was told that at one time in Northeast, there were small diners like this up and down Central Avenue. I've lived Northeast all my life. Kevin Kelsenberg owns the Ideal and has since 1981. Inside, they offer breakfast fare with names like the Working Man Special. Or you can choose the Lazy Man Special, if you aren't expecting to do too much work that day. For lunch, they have sandwiches and burgers. They close at 3.30, so you're out of luck for an ideal dinner. Over the years, the previous owner took photos of her customers. The walls have collages of their pictures. There are also photos sitting on top of the display case that is full of cool Ideal Diner t-shirts. For a long time, the Ideal was closed on Mondays, but with the economic slump of the past two years, Kevin has now opened for seven days a week. He says he can't afford for a customer to come by on a Monday and find it closed, and then be afraid to come back because it might be closed again. So now he's open every day. It must be a great place to work, because Colleen, who calls herself the Sunday Girl, started her temporary part-time job at the Ideal. 26 years ago. The pancakes are yellow at the ideal. And no, it's not because of special egg yolks. You will just have to go and pry the secret of the yellow pancakes out of Kevin yourself. The sign above the grill says it all. Where regular people feel special and special people feel regular. Okay, pause the walk, cross central with the light, turn right, and walk back under the railroad bridge and up to Diamonds. Turn the walk back on when you get to the other side of Central. If you want, when you get back to the Thorpe, you can go to the low corridor building between 1618 and 1620 Central. If you look in the first window display on the right side of the hall inside this building, you can see the Home and Safety Award that General Mills gave to themselves to throw off any suspicion that they were making a secret weapon in there. When I think about the Ideal Diner, I think about how important it is to preserve pieces of history as we move forward to make things better. Remember that the past wasn't always ideal, and the future is always bright with potential. Thank you for participating in the Northeast Neighborhood. For a list of resources and additional and more complete interviews, please visit our website at newalkingtours.com. This audio-guided walking tour was made possible by a grant from the Center for Regional and Urban Affairs and a donation from the Northeast Community Lutheran Church. This project was the result of the Partnership of ArtShare, Jonathan Hamilton, Sarah Hansen, and Jennifer RV, Holland Neighborhood Improvement Association, and the Emma B. Howe YMCA.
We would like to thank the participation and generous volunteer spirit of many Northeast neighbors. Abby Fields, Dan Turpening, John Sanders and Krista Ambrust of Bohm Development, Scott Tankanoff of Hillcrest Development, Patrick Riley of Modern Survey, Lisa Bouch of Uppercut Boxing Gym, Jake Robstein of Uncle Frankie's, Chank Diesel, Mary Larson, Sarah Hansen, Kevin Kelsenberg of The Ideal Diner, Wynn Yelland of Locus Architecture, Mike Fahey, and Robert Berry. And music from Baby Grant Johnson, Dan Turpening, Brent Fuqua, Karen Thomas, Rich Matson, and Snakeheart. And special thanks to Carol Nagan for map and poster design.